I'd like to offer some reflections this evening on one of the most fundamental and important areas of contemplation that the Buddha invited us to engage with. And this is the contemplation of our mortality, the contemplation of death. This is a primary Dharma theme. And the Buddha suggested this was something we could give consideration to on a regular basis. For himself, it was one of the things or one of the features of, of life which his encounter with stimulated, inspired him to seek, to enter into the journey of awakening, to seek freedom in the midst of a world in which all beings, having been born, are subject to death. And this is something which we, we all know. It's not news to any of us. And yet, we don't necessarily stay close to that knowing. And it's something which can be really supportive for us, helpful for us to reflect upon, to give us a sense of clarity, to bring us closer to what's really important in life, what's really important for us here on this retreat and in this moment. It's so easy for us to kind of get some kind of amnesia about certain things that we, we know but don't fully know, perhaps. And so one of, the, one of the things that you may have noticed about a place like Gaia House, or may have heard of it with regard to the, the, the teachings of the Buddha, the Buddhist tradition, is there's sometimes a bit of an enthusiasm for things that remind us of death. Things which, in our society, in our culture, mostly there's a lot of effort that goes into tidying it away, making it kind of safe or clinical or somehow distant from our day-to-day -day lives. And uh, it's an interesting feature of the fact that Guy House happens to be here in this, on these grounds in this building that uh, connects to this because when the previous owners of this, this place who, was, who were a um, order of nuns, missionary nuns, and this was a hospice where the nuns who came back from service would spend time when they weren't well or in the, the last years and days of their lives. And they had a graveyard which is still here. And they needed to sell it because there wasn't actually, they, they couldn't continue to support the, the, the running of the building. And two other Groups were interested as well as Guy House. This was about, um, this was like in 1996, so quite a while ago now, 18 years ago. And one of them was a, um, an old people's home. I thought I'd make a nice old people's home here. And the other was um, some people who wanted to build a sort of a, a family fun park, sort of for, for holidays in Devon. And one of the things that was important to the Order of Nuns was that this graveyard would be preserved. And they noticed, I think, probably some lack of enthusiasm amongst the old people's home for having a, a functioning graveyard right in the middle of the grounds, which is often what people don't want to be reminded of when they bring their elderly parents or when they are themselves elderly and in those years. And certainly, as far as having you know, families with kids coming and having fun, the idea of a, a functioning graveyard, not necessarily, but 
a, a sort of positive thing. But for Guy House, for us, it was like, great, we can have a real graveyard. You'd still like to bury the nuns of the order in those graves, and they have done since we've been here. Yeah, we'd really love that. And we didn't, Guy House didn't offer as much for this place as some of those organisations did and were able to, but the nuns sold it to us. Part of it was that I think they wanted something spiritual to continue in this place. But some of it was, I think, that they also recognised that we honoured and valued what that graveyard represented. And probably some of you have noticed that it's there, that uh, it's not a place to wander around in because it's, it's kind of held for at least 99 years, it's a lease for the, for the nuns to to have as a place to uh, retire to, I guess. And since we can't wander about in the graveyard, you're probably also aware that there's a skeleton in the walking room. And there was quite some debate about getting a skeleton at Guy House, and we were offered one by a, um, a person who had access through, to it through his medical training. And uh, some, oh, that'll scare people off, won't it? It's not, it's not what you really want. It doesn't sort of, it's not sort of very cheerful and jolly. And yet, again, the, this recognition of, but there's something important about being reminded. And I am often um, find myself reflecting on, remarking, we say, you know, there's a skeleton in the walking room. It's, some people find it interesting to engage with. Some people don't like it too much. Sometimes you can smell it a little bit in the air, and that's a bit strange too. It's, you know, it's, I guess, slowly decaying. But the reality is actually there's uh, it's probably about 60 skeletons in this room. Really, uh, there are, uh, probably about 60. And uh, yet we don't think there's much of a problem with that. We don't think, oh, that's going to put people off, 60 skeletons in the Dharma Hall. Probably no one even thought about it before coming in here. If we had 60 skeletons with no clothes and no flesh on it, it'd feel a little different, wouldn't it? What is that for us? That we kind of somehow easily hold back from turning fully towards this territory, this topic, this reality of our existence, which the Buddha encouraged us to give attention to. This soft human body. All these tissues and organs, this soft human being, creature. It's vulnerable. It can get hurt, get injured. It can come into contact with something travelling really quickly or rather hard and get squished in different ways. We've all been bruised, we've all broken things probably, or got bruised, you know, certainly as kids if not as adults. And yet there's a more fundamental version of that in which this thing stops working. You know? And what is it to just think about that a little bit? Because we mostly tend to think about it as something far distant from us. Unless, for some reason, it comes close. Some friends of mine once told me of walking through this old building, this beautiful old, um, I can't remember, I think it was in London, ancient, beautiful um, building, and just as they walked out of the room, the ceiling fell in, like tons of plaster and mortar and bricks and concrete just bang to the floor. And it's like, 
Just that sense of just a moment I was there and I would have been dead, gone, just gone like that. Without a moment's warning, no chance to call home. And it didn't happen for them at that time. And yet, equally, stories and friends and people I've known. And one good friend I remember, just young, as we were then in our 30s, and him with a wife and young child, and just one day, a blood vessel in his brain, just, just a blood vessel in his brain. And he just kind of paused for a moment. He didn't know what was happening. He paused for a moment, standing with a friend. Then he just collapsed. And within about three minutes, he was dead. Gone. Just gone. Didn't say goodbye to his wife or his daughter. Probably didn't know what happened. Just fainted and gone. And this happens every day to people like you and me. Yet somehow we don't quite take that in. We don't quite let ourselves know that that is so. This body is subject to illness, to aging, and to inevitable death. This is something to let ourselves contemplate, to turn towards, not shrink away from. And the, the Buddha encouraged us as practitioners to consider spending time, and as uh, his followers would in his, his days, sitting contemplating places where bodies were buried or places where bodies were left to decompose as they were in that part of India two and a half thousand years ago. And just watching and seeing what happens and looking at the body as it was sort of stiffening and then softening and then turning various colours and rotting and smelling and decomposing and at each point saying, oh, this will happen to my body. My body too will not escape this. Becoming bones, becoming dust. This too, this body will be subject to this. What happens for us when we just let that in a little bit? We let ourselves make contact with that. It's interesting because while at some level we know it, if we look at our lives, probably if we're honest, and certainly I can say the same for myself, there are plenty of times where we're living our lives, where I'm living my life, and where I guess you're probably living your lives in a way that suggests that we've forgotten that we're not here forever. That we're not even guaranteed to be here tomorrow. Because every day, people who were here the day before are not the following day. And they didn't <laughs> expect, they didn't get a message or a notice that told them, tomorrow you'll be gone. They were just gone. In so many different ways. There's a uh, remarkable and I find wonderful epitaph carved on a tombstone, I believe in a graveyard in Norfolk. I haven't seen it myself. And it says something like this, and I find it a remarkable last communication to the world by someone who's dead. And it says, Remember, friend, as you pass by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you must be. Prepare yourself to follow me. And I find it wonderful. 
It's interesting, isn't it? One might think it would be kind of sort of like a bit depressing and miserable. And of course, we might have some of those responses. But there's also something kind of very alive about it. Something very true and real about what that says and what that speaks to for the possibilities, for the, what makes sense in our life. <coughs> because we don't quite live close to the truth of this. And the Buddha, you know, encouraged and said as a, as a, as a daily reflection that we should, you know, take a moment to contemplate. I am of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. I am of the nature to sicken. I have not gone beyond sickness. I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond dying. These are the first three reflections he encouraged his followers to just contemplate on a daily basis, just to think about these. Because we know, but we don't quite know. There's a wonderful quote from the French philosopher, Gaillieu, who uh, I've never studied and I don't know his philosophy, but I know he said this because I heard someone quote him once and I rather liked it. He said, if we know but do not act accordingly, then we know imperfectly. Like we don't necessarily really know our mortality. If we don't act in a way that expresses that knowledge, that's in alignment with that knowledge. So the, the fact of our death is something that asks us not to take it for granted. To not to live as if it's forever. To look carefully, to see what's going on here. What's true? What's really important for us? And it's not actually something macabre, gloomy, or sort of depressing. There's something realistic. There's something actually vitalizing, enlivening. What I find when I talk about it, and people often reflect to me when they when we speak about it, is that actually it brings vitality. It's actually life-affirming to, to, to engage with this, to turn towards this. And when we reflect in this way, perhaps what we see, what we, above all, we see and recognize that what we have here is a precious opportunity that is not forever, this existence, this life, and how to make best use of it, how to use it well, knowing that it's not forever. Having the opportunity to, to hear, to practice the Dharma, to develop this remarkable heart-mind into its ever-deepening potentials for waking, awakening, and manifesting with wisdom and compassion, with kindness and understanding in this world. There's a, there's a quality of, of spiritual urgency that the Buddha speaks of, some, some wega. A sense of, yes, this is what I want to live my life with, and for, and close to. And it gives us perspective on what's really important. There's a beautiful um, paragraph in the, the teachings of Don Juan by Carlos Castaneda. And Don Juan is a, uh, a remarkable uh, shaman and uh, spiritual teacher. And, um, and I think in uh, 
central or, or southern um, North America. And he, he talks about living with death as your advisor. And the way that when we live close to death, it brings to an end the pettiness that plagues human beings who live as if death will not touch them. It's really interesting how much perspective we get from just contemplating that we may not be here tomorrow. How much less important it is to be constantly comfortable, to be always entertained, to be kind of having it my way and getting everyone else to agree that my way is the right way and the best way. You know that thing, don't you, where it's not okay to be right. One also needs other people to agree that one is right. Huh? Things like that are amazing. I find myself in that place sometimes. It's amazing. If one stops and thinks that neither of us might be here tomorrow, does it matter? Does it matter so much as we think it might be? What really matters? What really matters? I mean, how do we want to live this life? What do we want to have made the center, the priority? Don't put that off till later because now is the time to live your life. If we reflect on our mortality, it actually brings us closer. It brings us in contact with what's most important. I find it has a remarkable capacity to do this. There was an experiment that took place in, um, in the United States. I think it might have been Texas, I'm not sure. But in a, in a penitentiary, a prison, where a large number of the death row um, prisoners were incarcerated. And these prisons are known for being pretty hard, pretty violent, pretty scary places for everyone involved, for the, for the prisoners and for the for the guards and the officers and the people working in them. They're not pleasant places generally. And because of the circumstances, generally in death row circumstances, prisoners are housed separately and kept quite separate, have very minimal opportunity for interaction. And this experiment was done um, some years ago now to see what would happen if they brought these prisoners all together and gave them some tasks and some kind of like things to do, some projects, things to make, and supported them to work together. And what was noticed and remarked upon in an incredibly clear way, it seemed that there was this tenderness and kindliness amongst these really tough and hard-bitten characters, some of whom had undoubtedly done some pretty horrific things, and others of whom, of course, may not have, tragically but were nonetheless in the situation where their lives were going to be taken. And someone asked, they started asking, so, so what's going on? Because in most prison situations, when you put prisoners in, in, in these prison systems in the same place, there's a lot of aggression, there's a lot of violence, there's a lot of fear. And they said, how come there's so much tenderness and so much kindness here? And the prisoners responded simply, you know, we all know that each of us is going to die. 
And it's striking how when we know that, when that's close enough to us, and I don't suggest this is a good way to get close to it. It's a tragic situation in many ways. But nonetheless, to see that coming out of it, that actually that knowledge can touch even the hardest heart. And the Buddha himself, you know, when once his, um, his followers were arguing and fighting and, you know, the language that's recorded of the, 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 you know, from two and a half thousand years ago describes it like they were stabbing each other with verbal daggers. You know, it sounds like it was pretty nasty. And he said to them, you know, in one time like this, knowing that you will die, how can you quarrel? How can we be like that with each other? And sometimes to contemplate oneself, when we see how hard sometimes we are on ourselves, knowing that we too will die, remembering that, would not that perhaps bring us closer to some tenderness, some kindliness, some allowance for our limitations, our mistakes, our confusions, the things we might regret? All of which, all of us have these things. <coughs> and what we might also find ourselves moved to or touched by is the, the sense of wanting to share more naturally when we understand that what we have, we don't get to keep it. We just don't get to keep it. You know, we know that, but we sort of forget. Everything we have. And as the Buddha said in the fourth contemplation, he suggested we regularly take to heart and reflect on on a daily basis. He said, all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. Gosh, that's tough. It's like, what do we do with that? Well, one of the things we can do with that is have a sense of, oh, actually maybe I can share what I have. Because it's going to be shared at some point. <coughs> And there's a, a beautiful line in the Prophet by Khalil Gibran where he says, All that you have will be one day taken. Give now, so the season of generosity will be yours rather than your inheritors. The opportunity to enjoy the, the, the deep, uplifting quality of heart that comes with sharing what we have rather than hoarding it. And even just in small ways, we can find ways to do this. So there's, I think, a natural way that when we contemplate death, we have a sense of, of what we'd like to make of our lives, what we'd like to do with our lives. But there's always, I've found, well, often I've found, there can also be a hesitation, like, a, uh, but I'm not sure, maybe I'll do that soon, but I'm not quite sure if I can do it right now. You know, we kind of pause a little bit with those noble and beautiful intentions. It's like, yeah, once I'm just a little bit more sorted, then, then I can really put what's most important at the centre. 
And I had the, um, in a way, blessing, though at the time very painful experience in my early 20s of my closest friend from my school years uh, having an operation, a routine surgery that went wrong and dying slowly over the course of six months. In fact, he didn't quite die in the sense of dying. He, he chose to die in the end to take out the various things that were keeping him alive um, as his uh, internal system had shut down, died and been slowly one piece at a time removed. And uh, it was really painful, tragic, sad loss of a young life due to surgical error, ultimately. And I remember at the time having been working in a situation where I wasn't very happy, but I had some security in it. It gave me some money. I didn't have much else security in my life. And I had a sense of wanting to do something different, but I didn't quite have the courage to do it. A sense of, I need to just get a little bit more together before I actually follow and listen to what seems most important to me. And when my friend died, Radar, we used to call him. He had big ears that stuck out the sides. We used to call him Radar. And when he died, deeply painful and grief-stricken as I was, there was something that just resonated in me very clearly from him. It said, do it now. Do it now. Don't wait. You might not get the chance in one year, two year, five years' time. Do it now. And it gave me the courage to actually quit, to leave, and to embark on a journey which ultimately ended up here. And for which I'm remarkably grateful for the, for the gift he gave me in his, in his parting, in his departure, in his death. So what might there be for ourselves if we ask that question? What would we do if we knew today was going to be the last day of our lives? And uh, a friend and colleague, Shada, who some of you might know, um, or some of you will know, who uh, is from America and used to teach here regularly, once she um, asked that same question in this hall, and uh, one of the staff at the time, who was from Australia and had left his teenage daughters behind to come and work here, he, he, he heard that question, he thought about it, and he quit, which is rather problematic for Guy House, but he went home and said, oh gosh, I don't know for sure if I'll see my daughters again. I want to be with them. Kind of interesting what we might choose to do. And that's, I'm not suggesting, you know, I'm not expecting a mass exodus tomorrow. Um, but sometimes we realise that there's something really important we need to take care of. And we can't guarantee we'll get another chance. So, one of the things we might give attention to is this territory that we spoke about at the beginning of, of how we've lived, what we've, ac our actions in life, to see where we might really want to take care, whether there might be things left undone that we need to do, things left unsaid that we want to say, to say thank you, to say sorry. To say, I love you, to those people we need to thank, we need to apologize to, we need to express our affection for, even if we've done it recently, especially if we haven't done it at all. To really contemplate that, what it's like. 
that one day we'll be parted from those we most love, that we most care about. What would we want them to know? What would we, have wa- what would we want to have said? And to find ways, even though it might not be easy, sometimes we might need to tell them something that's difficult, equally as express what we care or our love. But to find ways to do that. Because it's this process of of actually listening to what's most important and finding ways to live it that allows the heart to clear. Allows a kind of a, already supports a clearing, a settling, an opening of the heart. What the Buddha spoke of is a life of no regret. Which doesn't mean one didn't make mistakes or mess up and do some things we feel really sorrowful about. Sure, we do that. But that when we do that, we step up and say, sorry. And we do what we can to help with what might be the might be the impact of that. And that we can just acknowledge. And uh, for years, we don't do it so often now, but my wife Catherine and I, when one of us would be heading, we both teach retreats like this in different places, and so we're regularly going off in different directions at different times. And for many years we would make the practice of just pausing, even when one of us was just going off for the day, and just saying, you know, I hope I see you again. Just to let ourselves feel that, yeah. Yeah, I do, because it's true. I do hope I see you again. And I'm not just pretending that I will for sure, because every day people go off to do their daily thing, assuming they'll come home that night, and they don't. So there's something about living in the moment. There's something about the freshness, the immediacy that brings us to. That I find and that when I come and reflect on this topic and speak about this topic as I feel moved to do not infrequently, it's like there's something with so much aliveness, so much vitality here. And so touching. Something incredibly touching about this. Turning towards this. I mean, to live our life in the light of death, it's really interesting. You know, in one sense, it takes a lot of the pressure out of it. It's a bit like coming on retreat, you know. Sometimes I say to people, it's, when you come on retreat, it, it's a bit like, you know, although it's not going to be easy, the world has to get on without you for a little while, isn't it? You know, all those people, all those things that so rely on your incredibly important, and I'm not being sarcastic or cynical here, you're really important, beautiful, wonderful contributions. And for a little while, they have to get on without them. They don't have your care, your support, your work, your kind words, whatever it is you give. And I'm sure there are many things you all give. And it's like, I say, it's good to give the world a little bit of practice for getting on without you. Because one day it's going to have to get on without us. And actually to say, oh yeah, it'll, it'll manage, it'll actually cope. It'll be alright in the end. It might be painful, but it'll be alright for the world to get on without you or without me. And there's kind of a sort of a, oh, oh yeah, okay. You know, I don't know what medical science is going to do in the next 50, 70, 80 years, but probably in 100 years we'll all be dead. If any of you survive that and prove me wrong, 
I'll be happy. I won't be upset. But that's going to be so. In a very interesting way, death reminds us the world does not revolve around me. And yet at the same time, what we feel when we contemplate it is the sense of the preciousness of it. The incredible, exquisite value, preciousness and beauty of life. Precisely because it's not forever that stands out to us, is much clearer to us. It can be felt most directly, I think, in that contemplation, in this contemplation. And there's a, um, a little plaque at a monastery where I'm fortunate to have opportunity to go and visit and practice in um, East Sussex, the Chithurst or Chittavaveka, the, uh, the secluded mind, the monastery of the secluded heart, quiet heart, we could say. And um, there's this little plaque, and it's got a haiku on it. And the haiku reads, I can't remember the author of it, and I'm probably not going to get it word perfect, but it's something like this. It reads, The cherry blossoms cover the hillside for but a few days. Any longer, and we would not treasure them so. And then it's got the words, Little Sam, and a single date. And that sense of the preciousness that it speaks, that I find myself touched by when I read it, when I remember it, when I share it, that sense of a life that was just for one day. So precious, so beautiful, not less so because of that. The preciousness, the beauty, the capacity to touch our heart is not dependent on the duration of the life. It's not taken away by it being cut short in that situation. It must have been so deeply painful for the parents of that, that baby boy who, it seems, was born and died on the same day. So what do you notice when I speak in this way? Do you find yourself pulling back, thinking, mm, I don't like this? You might do, that's okay. Or do you find yourself responding? Is there a sense of, huh, yeah, this is important. I don't want to forget this. this. That's my response. What I notice is my response is, I don't want to forget remembering this. And there's a, there's a, there's a, um, a book and a, a training course or a practice that's established by Stephen Levine quite some years ago now called A Year to Live in which people take on as a practice for a year to live as if at the end of that year they will die. Now, there may be, and I don't know that there are, but there may be amongst us people for whom there's a medical situation or condition where they have some idea of that. I have friends, I have students, I have one of my relatives, just uh, so brother-in-law just recently. There's a diagnosis and this could be terminal. 
or a friend last year who I guess he found out three months before and he had three months to live and it was three months and at the end of the year pretty much in line with what was predicted he he died what would it be to live our life in that way what would it be to live our retreat as if we weren't guaranteed any particular duration of life In, in his book, A Year to Live, Stephen Levine, he's a Dharma teacher, he, he was reflecting on this and he said something which, which struck me and I was, and continued to be very touched by. He said, in the end, through this practice, what became clear, he said, love was the only rational act of a lifetime. And there's something for me very, very powerful and brilliant and moving in the sense of Love being a rational act. We tend to think, well, no, if you go with your heart, that's not rational, and the mind is something else. But it's not true. When we actually live with the truth of mortality, love and rationality actually come very, very closely together so as to be indistinguishable. What else makes sense in the end except that and to find ways to live that to share that, to be that. <coughs> and also, we find in contemplating this topic and looking at this territory that It brings a sense of kind of, I'm trying to think, inspiration might be the word, but it's actually, again, it's deeper. It's more, more urgency. It's the sense of to really look into this life. What's it really about? What's really going on here? That these beings so full of life can be here and then <laughs> gone. Because that's kind of how it is. Life is here, full, and then it's not in that body anymore. It's hard for us to turn towards this territory. It's hard for us to really let it in. And so much of the way we live is much more the living death of being on autopilot when we're unconscious, when we're not really here, when we're not making a priority and holding at the center of our life this possibility for wakefulness, for presence, for heartfulness, for love. The Buddha once said that this practice, mindfulness, he said, is the path to the deathless. He said, the heedless live as if they're already dead. Living on autopilot, living habitually, living unconsciously. It's not really alive. It's not really full of the vitality of life. But it's not easy for us. It's not easy for us to do this. Because when we turn towards this topic, what we see is, is the sense of profound loss that it evokes. 
the loss of the future, and equally the loss of the past, the loss of the reference points that we hold on to, that give us the appearance of our idea of who and what we are. The, the death that we can actually engage with, that isn't just our ideas about death, is the entry into the unknownness of this moment, the uncertainty, the ungraspableness of this moment, to meet the immediacy of life right here and right now, and to let go of what we conceive, believe, or imagine death might be. Because we don't know. We haven't been there. By definition, being here, we haven't been there. At least not with this body. And uh, I don't know about you, but certainly not in any form of remembering that I've got available. And of course, there might be those who will say, it's just nothing happens afterwards. It's just everything goes blank, annihilation, finito, completo, whatever. And there'll be those that say, of course, no, 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 there's, there's something more. It starts again. You do it another time, slightly differently. But we don't know. We don't know whether annihilation or rebirth are true. We can't know. But what we can die into is this moment. To let ourselves be wholeheartedly here. To let go of the past and the future that we hold so tightly. And to enter into this, we have to travel or be willing to navigate that territory of loss, of grief. The loss of our ideas of who we are. <coughs> and the loss that we feel or that we associate with, with death. That's often what we're looking away from. That's why our society hides it. That's why... We seem to want to not have to talk about or look at the territories because it brings us into contact with something that's hard to bear. This that we call loss, that we call grief. And yet it's inescapable. Having entered into birth, death must be. But that doesn't mean it's easy. That's not, I'm not suggesting in any way, and I don't think the Buddha was suggesting at all, that somehow we take it casually or lightly. Oh, of course it's going to happen. No, no. It's not an easy thing. And what's it like for us to just take that to mind? I find it helpful and touching to just reflect on what that's like. To part from those that we love. And I was recently touched reading the account of a, um, of a climber um, from New Zealand who, uh, his name was Rob Hall. I actually, I didn't know him personally, but I knew of him. And um, this is the story of his, uh, his last time. He, he'd, he'd made his fifth successful summit of Everest in May 1996, which is a record for anyone apart from the Sherpa people, the native people of that area. But the expedition turned into tragedy. He was trying to get a group of weak and stranded climate, uh, climbers off the summit. And... Um, He was out of oxygen, had been exposed to the elements for two days and a night. He chose to stay with one of his clients, who was too weak to climb down. He could have climbed down himself, but he'd brought this guy up and he was staying with him to try and get him down. And when his strength was failing, he asked the people at base camp to, uh, to put him through to his wife. 
who was in Christchurch, this is where I come from, and she was seven months pregnant. And, you know, with phones these days, you can talk to someone on a mountain. And he said, he reassured her that he was reasonably comfortable, and he said, I love you. He said, sleep well, my sweetheart. Please don't worry too much. And he knew and she knew when he spoke those words that they were the last words of a dying man and she hearing them as his wife, the mother of his as yet unborn child. And then he was gone. I heard recently, I think a year or two ago in England, a young man, 15, 16, playing with his friends on the train track, somehow got his foot caught. Couldn't get his foot out. Don't know how that happened. A train was coming. Called his father. Dad, help! Help! Dad's on the phone. I'm coming! Doesn't get there in time. I don't imagine either of them hung up. I can't imagine what that would have been like. It's something about, oh my gosh. Can we let ourselves be touched by the immensity, the beauty and the poignancy of what it is to be in this world, yet not forever? To love beings that are in this world who will not be here forever. Can we turn towards that place in ourselves? Because that loss that we fear, that we may be impacted by the feeling of, and that we might be challenged by and struggling with maybe in our lives, and I'm not saying that this isn't a struggle or something easy at all, but that we can we turn towards what this might mean for us? Because in the pulling away, we actually lose something precious, something so important. And in turning towards what we might start to sense is that there's a deeper loss. That the loss which death brings us in contact with or points us towards, that there's a deeper loss, which is the loss of contact, of connection with what is most fundamentally true? What is most essential, most alive and vital in this existence, in this heart, in this life? And in our becoming unconscious, losing contact with that, there's a deep grief and pain. But it's through the willingness to open to this, to be in contact with this, to see that it is not actually dangerous to us. Difficult and painful as it may be, it is not actually dangerous to us. That we can learn to let go profoundly and deeply. Ultimately, what the truth of death, what the contemplation of our mortality asks of us and invites us 
is this process and this practice of releasing, of letting go of our grip upon life. Allowing it to move, allowing its natural fluidity, its natural and remarkable, creative, beautiful, and yet challenging unfoldment to express itself in us and through us. To hold no thing, no place, no idea, no experience. This is to open our hearts, our minds, our being to the touch of what the Buddha spoke of as the deathless, the unborn, undying. That realization and understanding which frees the human heart from the shadow of death. And this is something so close to us that it's hard for us to see. But if we're interested, we can come to understand what the Buddha is pointing to and speaking of here. So I'll finish with a poem. by Red Hawk. He writes, The time comes when it is e easier to die. He says, We have to go deeper inside like a tired miner chipping through stone. We have to dig even when we have had enough and it is no longer worth it to get up out of bed. The morning is cold. The grey clouds move in low like a flock of dark crows over a picked field. That is when we have to go deeper through another hard layer of pain. You have to be relentless to make it in this place because it will be relentless with you. It will never stop beating and grinding, wearing you down with one more thing gone wrong. Friends will die or their nerves will fail. Women will cease to be thrilled with you. Men will cease to be thrilled with you. And your sorry efforts to hold it all together will come to nothing. You will still tremble in the leg, go grey and dim in the face, leak more every year in your yellowed shorts. Don't be in a hurry to pack it in. The time will come when it is easier to dig, easier to die than to dig. The trick is to find the gold before death finds you and sit there in the heart where you cannot be taken. While death storms and rages all around you, Stealing everything in sight, but only left holding a bag full of bones. <coughs> so it's not a trick, per se to let ourselves enter more and more fully, more and more deeply, into the simplicity of this moment, of each moment. To not take the experiences arising as somehow definitive of who we are, 
of what is most true, to see their movement and their flow, and of course learning as we do the arts of handling them skillfully, and that's an ongoing journey. But something more fundamentally, when we don't take ourselves to be the things that are arising, when we see them as coming and going as they do, when we watch this journey of life with the perspective that death gives us, with all the care and all the love we can bring forth. But at the same time, that sense of, look, here it is. It simply flows through this space. For so long as it does, and until it doesn't. And in this condition, we have all that we need to discover, to know, and to understand. What we most yearn for in our hearts. which cannot be taken. So let's sit quietly for a few moments together. So may we all, in our practice here together and in our lives, may we have the courage to contemplate the truth of our lives, the reality of mortality. And may we allow our hearts to be touched and opened with kindness and with love through that contemplation. And may we come to know and abide in the simple truth that is unborn and undying for our own welfare and for the welfare of all beings.